0: Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast. I'm your host Andy Davis and this is a very special episode for lots of different reasons. First of all, it's the last episode of 2020 and what a ride it's been. We've got Christmas in a few days and I can't wait. We're not seeing anyone or going anywhere so that basically means eating enough cheese to necessitate me personally needing my own trade deal with the EU. Secondly, technically, this is episode 12 of season 2, but, and I can't quite believe this one myself, it's actually the 50th full episode of the KBB Review Podcast. When we started this back in March, I would never have thought there'd be 50 full episodes plus another 10 bonus ones. Thank you if you've listened all the way and followed us as we follow the KBB industry through a, frankly, astonishing time. And thirdly, this is a very special episode because of the guests we have on. I've got an absolutely fascinating chat with kitchen design legend Johnny Gray and Professor Peter Gore from the UK National Innovation Centre for Ageing up in Newcastle. Together, they have developed the 4 Gen Kitchen, a proper working kitchen that's been installed at Newcastle University that encapsulates all the latest thinking on multi-generational living. It's so interesting, and while it's conceptual... It has so much resonance and relevance to anyone in the market looking to move design and innovation forward. I really highly recommend listening to that. It's so interesting. But before we get into that... This is a very special episode. As I say, it's nearly Christmas and this is the last one in 2020. I was trying to think of who I could have on as a guest to try and sum up everything that's happened this year. So I thought I'd try something a little bit different... It's been a bit of a technical challenge, as you can imagine, but I think I've managed to rig my setup here to be able to talk to the past. Now, if I've got the settings right, down the line now should be me from January 2020. Hello, Andy. Hello. So I'm you from the future. I'm here to tell you all about the future of the KBB industry. My God, that's incredible. Where are you from? Well, I'm from December 2020. Really? Is that all? It's only 11 months from now. Yeah, all right. Well, believe me, we packed a lot in. Oh, OK. Well, what can you tell me? Well... I want to fill you in on what's coming for the KBB industry, but because of the whole butterfly flapping its wings thing, I can't actually give too much away, it turns out. Really? That's quite disappointing. People assume that time is strict cause-to-effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. That sentence got away from you a bit, didn't it? Yeah, it did a bit, yeah. Well, OK. We're planning for the KBB show and our awards in Birmingham in March. How does it go? Actually, that's all really good. Thumbs up. Oh, good. A real springboard for a successful rest of the year? Yeah, um, not so much. Oh. Oh, it's Brexit, isn't it? The deal we got isn't very good, is it? Well, I can honestly say that Brexit just isn't quite as important as it used to be. Oh, I can't believe that. What could be more important than Brexit? Well, you'd be surprised. Well, what can you tell me? Well, th- there's a virus. Like a computer virus? Like the Millennium Bug? Have you tried turning your computer off and on again? No, no. I mean an actual virus. A pandemic, in fact. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Look, in short, there's a lot of hand washing and all the KBB showrooms have to close. Sort of. Sort of? Yeah, it's complicated. They close, then they open by appointment only, then they close again, and then we're not so sure. Well, I'm sure the government are on top of it. Yeah. Oh, well, what else happens? Well, look at it this way you might want to buy shares in Zoom. Zoom? Yeah. As in just one kiss and then my heart went boom? No, that's Fat Larry's band. I mean the video conferencing platform Zoom. Although, funnily enough, Fat Larry does need to watch out as obesity does play a big part in how vulnerable you are. I've never heard of Zoom. No, nobody has. So why is it important to KBB retailers? Well, that's how they carry on talking to all their clients, because they can't have them in their showrooms. You just said they could open sometimes. Well, yes, they can. Or maybe can't. Or maybe neither. I'll be honest, it's all a bit of a mess. So does that mean all the retailers are in trouble? Well, it looked a bit shaky for a while, but most of them have now got more work than they know what to do with. So the virus is a good thing? No. But they must be delighted, though. Well, sort of. The virus has meant that they've got lots of jobs, but they can't finish them because there's a shortage of products. But these are some of the biggest brands in the industry. Surely they're as reliable as they always are. Like I said, 2020 has been a very weird year. In fact, another investment tip, you might want to stock up on dishwashers. Right. Oh, you might also want to practice your time's tables. Why, is there a nationwide calculator short? No, but believe me, in a few months' time, these two words will fill more adults with dread than the pandemic itself. Home, schooling. They'll never close the schools. That would be madness. Again, hello 2020. So what does all this mean for the KBB industry in the long run? Oh, toilet rolls. What? Sorry, I just remembered, get plenty of toilet rolls too. Oh my God, what are the symptoms of this virus? Oh no, nothing like that. For some reason, idiots bought by toilet rolls. No one really knew why. Okay. so what are the other big KBB industry things I should know? Well, everyone gets stuck at home, so they decide to do them up. And that's what causes the sudden demand. Okay. So there's a big shortage of skilled installers. But there's already a big shortage of skilled installers. Yes, I know. So that's not new? No, but it does make lots of people think it's really urgent that we do something about it right now. And do they? Not really, no. So no change there, then? Yes, good point. Is there anything good that comes out of all this? Well, we launch a podcast that does very well. We win an award for podcast of the year. Oh, wow, that's amazing. I know. Oh, you don't go on and on about it, though, do you? You do have a tendency to do that. No, I don't. I'm you, remember? Of course you do. Remember Pointless? I will never forget Pointless. Exactly. Hello? Hello? Who's there? Oh, I made it I'm future Andy. Oh, my God. I thought I was already talking to future Andy. No, that's Andy from December 2020. I'm Andy from December 2021. Oh, God, this is getting really complicated. It's like Back to the Future too, you know, the one no one remembers very well.
1: I'm calling in to let you know what happens during 2021.
0: Well, that's amazing. After the year 2020 has been, it'd be good to know how it all turns out. For me too, all I've got so far is that there's a virus and it's all Fat Larry's fault. Well, that's good news. We've got the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2021 booked in for May. Oh, yeah, that all goes ahead, and in fact, it's the best awards ever. Excellent. It all kind of goes downhill after that, though. Oh, God. What happens? Well, I can't tell you too much. Yes, I know, timey-wimey, but give us a clue. Well, look at this way. I've only got a few seconds before Empress Alexa dispatches her machine assassins to hunt me and the rest of the human resistance down. And how are KBB retailers doing? Well, they're still fine. i run a case of machine overlords really sort out those supply chain issues. Well, that's a relief. i better go. There's a kind of dishwasher in the area. Bye! So it sounds like the next couple of years are going to be interesting, then. Indeed it does. Wow. Oh, one more thing. Is there anything else I should be investing in apart from Zoom and dishwashers? Oh, well, there's loads. Tesco delivery slots, face masks, baked potatoes, bread flour, hand sanitizer, hair clippers. I mean, I could go on. Or should I just lock the door and stay at home until I catch up with you? If I'm honest, that pretty much sums up 2020 anyway. Oh, I'll do that then. Hey, I can clear the loft out and go up there. That's the best idea you'll have all year. Excellent. Oh, one more thing before you go. I need to know your favourite, most feel-good movie of all time. It's for a feature I call Silence of the Laminates. Oh. Well, you're me, so you know the answer to that already. I know, but say it anyway. Oh well, there's no contest, is there? It's the cannonball run. Of course it is. Andy from the past, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Oh, do you have the winning lottery number... Hello? Hello? No, no, he's gone. Never mind. Sure, it wasn't important. Now, the concept of a multi-generational approach to design has been around for a few years now in the KBB world, and I'm so delighted to say that we're joined now by a couple of the founders and architects of that movement. Now, they've just unveiled the 4Gen Kitchen, a fascinating concept project that practically demonstrates how a kitchen can flex and adapt to meet the different needs of different ages and abilities. Now, in fact, they've built it as the world's most intelligent kitchen, so... Down the line to talk to the least intelligent podcast host is kitchen design legend, Johnny Gray. Hello, Johnny.
1: Hi there. Hi there. Nice to
0: be here. Now, I must stress, that's a, a job title I've given you. It's not on your business card there. But yeah, I'm sure you don't mind being called a legend, do you? No, it's absolutely wonderful. Like, what I've always wanted, and I'm desperately in need of it. <laughs> <laughs> and also down the line there, we've got Professor Peter Gore from the UK National Innovation Centre for Ageing up there in Newcastle. Hello, Peter.
2: Hi, good morning.
0: You could be a legend as well. You've been doing this a long time too, so you can be a legend too, I think.
2: Thank you. Nobody's ever called me that. They've called me like <laughs> but
0: not that. So, hello to you both. You're coming from two different places. So you're up in Newcastle, Peter, I'm guessing?
2: No, actually, I'm in the Peak District, which is where I live, but I,
1: ah. you know, I do a lot of my work in Newcastle. Well, it's a beautiful part of the world. And where are you, Johnny? I'm down facing the south down between Petersfield and Midhurst, which is a very beautiful part of the country.
0: It is. And I'm in South London looking out the window at Penge. It's not, it's not the same, is it? So hello to you both. Thank you for coming on to talk to us about this because it's so interesting. And it's been a long time in development. I think this to reach to get to the point where we've got a a practical kitchen has been fitted and installed there in the Newcastle Helix, which is part of Newcastle University. While it's been going around for a long time, this idea, it somehow never felt more relevant that we're kind of talking about this now, when, we, when vulnerability is such a part of the national conversation. So, Johnny, forgive me, I think most people listening will already know you, so we're going to start with Peter. Peter, could you just give us a brief explanation of what the purpose is of the UK National Innovation Centre for Ageing? Because it's such an interesting place.
2: It's government-funded um, organisation, so although it's based in Newcastle, actually uh, Newcastle got a lot of money from the UK government to set this up and it was really about trying to en- engage academia and industry in creating useful things to address the challenges of ageing, but things that were, were, were driven by business but also joined with the things that people who get older say they want to do. So we have Uh, Literally about 30,000 older people are involved with the National Innovation Centre now who express the kinds of desires and aspirations that they have. And then we bring the academics and industry together to try to produce something that's in everybody's interests.
0: Now, I know you give this talk all the time, but can you just give us very briefly an idea of why the ageing market, for want of a better description of putting it, is so important to business and why you need to have this kind of link between the two?
2: Well, I guess there's a variety of reasons. The first one is that, that there's a massive need for things that help people age better. The reality is that we don't age as well as we could, and that costs billions in the light of recent circumstances and the, the, the empty coffers of the Treasury. That's never more important than than now. But also about 60 to 70% of the nation's wealth is in the over 50s anyway. So it's not that they don't have money. It's just that you've got to give them things or sell them things that they want. And we always thought there was really good opportunity, not least in the kitchen space. But the one thing that I know you can't do is sell an older person's kitchen. I've never met anybody who wants one. They will dream all sorts of horrible Uh, constructions and so this wasn't about really building something or designing or thinking about older people but saying actually people have problems across the life course for a variety of reasons sometimes that's age sometimes that's youth sometimes it's somewhere in between why don't we just design something good that is aspirational for all generations and as it happens the idea of Living together in a more multi-generational setting has become very aspirational in the UK. In a relatively recent survey, about 60% of people said they were interested in it. 12% said they would do it right now if they could have the right property. 7% actually do. Um, so there's a real opportunity here and people say oh well nobody's got any money well actually if you bring multiple generations together and have pooled budgets you do end up with more money for housing and more money for kitchens provided you can meet people's needs.
0: yeah and that's what makes it so interesting i think it's about solving problems not about addressing age well we'll come on to the details of that in a minute but before we get on to that johnny can you give us a Brief background of how you came to be involved in this project. The basic aim is to design the perfect example of a multi generational kitchen. So, how did you get involved?
1: Well, all because of you, Andrew. You you had the the, the misfortune of having me uh, give a talk at a kitchen design conference along with Peter a few minutes earlier. I was very inspired by his talk. But on on a more serious note, I just I just think kitchen design has to move more towards understanding people's behaviour and their experience, or creating if you like, experience. In fact, I don't know whether you saw the Mary Portis response to the collapse of the high streets. She talks about how retailers and the high streets need to be kinder. And what she means is kinder to communities. And really, what this kitchen is partly about, I think, is it's about a kinder response to the way we design things for people. And there's so, there's so many lovely breakthrough moments here. But I think one of the earliest ones was linking this with multi-generational design. And my first really big request from Peter and from from NICA, or the National Innovation Centre for Ageing, from Patrick Bonnet was to create this RSA brief um, where we designed this, we we created this student design challenge around taking kitchen design into a sort of um, multi-generational opportunity, using the language of multi-generational design, if you like, rather than disability, accessibility, and focusing on the negative aspects. And that was a real breakthrough moment for me because when we launched, uh, it was called Each Share, Live, the brief, which Peter and others judged. We had, we think a thousand students from universities around the world were excited enough to choose this brief over many others. And we realized we were tapping into something. There's a real desire, I think, to please people. Designers like pleasing people. And it's not good enough any longer to produce a stylish product that just simply you think is going to be, you know, excite the market for, for a few years, just like what Mary Porter says with fashion. We want to make things that last. In other words, you've got to have some good solid sort of thinking. And definitely, I think the multi-generational aspect gives this gives this legs that it otherwise wouldn't have had. Um, so that's kind of partly what brought me to the table. And the other thing is that, honestly, the the quality of um, so much kitchen design is not really very good. Kitchen designers aren't educated. And I, I know that it's obvious I would say this because of my work with education, but we can do so much better. And what Peter what the lovely message about uh, about Peter's kind of approach to this is we can make this really exciting and fun and, and what he calls aspirational. We can make it kinder. So here we are with this lovely opportunity to have a sort of thinking kitchen. And I didn't use the word the most intelligent kitchen on the planet <laughs> well, <it's laughs> at all. I love the idea that we can use much more thinking in how we design kitchens
0: a lot of what you're doing with this and as I say we'll come on to the details and I mean this is the best possible way it's quite obvious but I think what it does is it challenges lots of conventions of how kitchens are made because they have been weighed in exactly the same way and exactly the same sizes in the mass market certainly for a very long time governed by the size of appliances and that kind of thing and this really slams the brakes on a little bit and says hang on a minute it doesn't have to be like that. By compromising in those things, you're not compromising in style or design or accessibility or usability.
1: Or making money. I mean, that's the, 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 the magic of all this. There's just plenty of scope here for still having, making really a good commercial go with a slightly different approach. Peter, one of the things I
0: found fascinating when I started reading up on this is that while this whole conversation is about multi-generational living, actually the starting point of developing the practical elements of this aren't really about age at all. They're about ability regardless of age.
2: We talk about older people as if the things that they do are things that we don't do or the things they can't do are things that sometimes we can't do. The, the truth is we, we all need to do things to enjoy life and cook and, and all of those kinds of things. So, so here's a really simple example. Uh, twice during lockdown, I've uh, left the hob on, on uh, in my kitchen, just forgetfulness. Um, I wouldn't say, some might, but I wouldn't say it was anything to do with my age. I'm just busy and I forgot and left a pan on and created a potential hazard there. But actually you can do that for a whole variety of reasons. You can do that because the kids distract you. And so we could say it's an older person's problem and certainly older people have the problem, but actually it's not an older person's problem. It's a problem lots of people have for all sorts of different reasons. So instead of branding and pigeonholing people and their problems, which tends to stigmatize and therefore put people off. Why don't we just say, do you know what, you can't burn this kitchen down because it knows what you're up to. And you go, that sounds like a good idea. And everybody says that sounds like a good idea, not, you know, that would be a good idea for great grandma. Um, It's a good idea for all of us. So that's what we're trying to do is the the one thing we, we didn't set out to do was create an older person's kitchen. And what I'm thrilled to say is that I've never seen anybody who's seen it so far, whether they've come into it or seen it virtually, who's actually described it in that way. Uh, and, And I think that's a huge success.
0: Because I think there's so much conversation at the moment about age groups because of the whole, particularly now Now we're into talking about vaccines, the, of protecting the vulnerable and poor people over the age of 80 and how we need to protect them and, and make sure they're okay and they'll be the first in the queue for the vaccine. And actually I know an awful lot of very sprightly eight, uh, 80 year olds who are quite annoyed about how frail they're being made out to be. People are being defined by their age again, not their ability.
2: Yes. So the big challenge here is when we talk about older people, are we talking about the way you need to be, or what happens to you simply because of age, or what happens because of the choices that we 've made, and what we 're seeing is that uh, and I think there 's huge evidence that suggests that it 's not about aging it 's about how cohorts have chosen to age, and we need to change that uh, that kind of dialect i mean one of my favorite heroes is a, a chap he still runs up um, Uh, arthur's mount in edinburgh every day um he's now 104 and he took up marathon running at 85 and i'm planning to do the same actually i think that's just brilliant but it's not what we hear and it is an outlier but you'd be surprised how many people on a typical park run are um what you might describe if you just use chronological age as older people but chronological age and physiological age are not the same. And the problem is we don't know that and we don't know it can be different. So we don't try to make it different. We just say, well, what do you expect at my age? And you go, well, I expect you to be fit and healthy and uh, a good weight and getting out and doing the things that you want. Okay, we will have some challenges as we get older with that, but not nearly as much as you'd think. And, And the problem is for our medical community, is they only see older people that are aging badly for whatever reason, either choice and or uh, genetics. I and mean, it's about 75% choice, about 25% genetic. So we think that's the norm. But the, the thing is, the fit and healthy older people aren't going into their doctor's surgeries or going into the NHS because of problems. But So we, we're sort of biased by the people that we're seeing, and, and, and we need to change that.
0: Or well, they're running for president instead.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: That's true. Wasn't there some statistic, Peter? I seem to remember you saying that uh, nobody ever thinks of themselves as old. They always think that old is 15 years older than them. Is that right? Yeah, that's, right.
2: Uh, It's about right. But when you think about it, for an 85-year-old, they're thinking a 100 is old. And actually, if you talk to a 15-year-old, they think 30 is old. The point is we're never old in our own eyes which is also an important point then in terms of your marketing, because if you market to older people, nobody is one in their own eyes. So they've just discounted all your marketing by pitching to something that they don't engage with, which just, you know, why would you do that? Okay,
0: so let's get into some uh, detail here, Johnny, because I mean, I think we can sort of crudely divide the features of this kitchen into, into two halves, can't we? One is sort of safety and the other is sort of usability. Let's take safety First, how did you approach that element of the design
1: and what are the main safety features that are in there? The lovely opportunity in the kitchen design is that you're basically um, pushing people around and telling them what to do with surfaces and shapes. um, And there's a lovely word we use called an affordance, which is basically a sort of medieval word about how you can afford somebody to do something. It's basically allowing somebody to do something. So in this particular case, I, in a way, I'm encouraging people to use these separated what we call dedicated work surfaces. so people each one of these work surfaces, i have a plan for what you can or can't do so there's a sense of there's a hidden sense of order which i've kind of pushed in there which i try to make as friendly and charming as possible so people don't even think that so for example we've got um the key sort of uh, working area is, is this end-grain chopping block circular, circular thing about 1,100 millimetres in diameter. And you can do almost anything on that. You can eat on it. It can be a low level. You can turn it into a bar um, serve drinks on it. You can chop on it at different levels. Anybody can use it, any height. And you can even use it sitting down or in a wheelchair. And there's no compromise to any of those activities whilst you do it. So that's one of the first things to establish. Now, the other thing is, it happens to be that my philosophy for a very long time, almost since I started, was trying to make kitchens sociable. So the way I make things safe in some ways is using a couple of the core bits of philosophy from that. And the first one is soft geometry. So you make anything with a sharp edge, if possible, you try to minimise or turn into a literally a curved edge. And that's because when we root find, our brain uses peripheral vision. And if you have sharp corners it triggers off your fight and flight response mechanism, which immediately makes you slightly not exactly fearful. And I'm talking about, obviously, at a subliminal level. This is the mood music. But the mood music here is that you can flow around this space. Now, one of the unexpected things, I think, for me, was that I didn't really realize this, but this is perfect for a wheelchair because nobody uses a wheelchair sort of moving around in rectangles. But, of course, nor do human beings walk like that. So, number one, it's it's kind on your sense of movement and your body. You. You're less likely to hurt yourself in this kitchen physically. And children won't poke their eyes out on sharp corners on a central island. The next one that's very much part of that is this idea of eye contact. It's all about sociability. So whenever you're doing anything that's a long-lasting activity, and I mean more than a few seconds, you're facing into the room. You can't have a conversation if your back is is facing the room. But you can if your back's facing the wall. So as much as possible, make things put in the middle of the room. There's a lot of stuff like that can go on, but just let's do a little bit now of of a link between physical objects and tech and safety, because one of the key aspects of innovation aspects of this is the way that we've created this The central part of the Central Island is effectively one large piece of ceramic glass into which we've built a technology for cooking and also for using electrical appliances without cords. So we've had such a good response to this. Now, in theory, we're going to make, or Peter will explain to you, we're going to make it so that technology will pick up things that are burning. So it will switch off the hob if something happens. So it makes it very safe. And of course, as we know with induction hobs, on the whole, they don't heat up. They're safe places to cook. You don't get burned. And then finally, the the other thing, of course, is the use of um, a sociable aspect of of, of kitchens is really making tea and coffee and turning that into a kind of mainstream activities so that the cooker sits on a drum which is separated from the other parts of the core cooking process so that people can do several things at once it's really important that the kitchen is a place where lots of people can do things literally all at once and if we can achieve anything uh, to do with, with uh, sociability it's that offer it's an offer whereby it's an invitation to come and use the kitchen with other people and do a variety of different things
0: it's interesting isn't it how technology has allowed so much of this to happen that's the thing that moves it from being a conceptual thing to a reality isn't it so for example if i've got this right the floor can detect if some liquid has been spilt on it
2: that's true within reason so we have sensors that we can put around and we can measure so so long as we the water's somewhere where we can actually find it we don't we don't have sensors in all of the floor but so long as There's a bit of a pool of water Then we can pick that up and uh, we shut off the water supply until somebody does something about it, because there might not be anybody in the room. And we've got Alexa in the corner starting to scream at you saying, I've detected water on the floor. I'm shutting off your water supply. But as soon as you fix it, she then turns it all back on again. We know that happens. And we know that if we don't do something about it, somebody's left a tap on. We know that will just become worse and become very expensive to fix. So just put some sensors in. They're not that expensive, but the cost of a flooded kitchen is. So it's just good technology that already exists.
0: It also restricts the access to some of the, you know, whatever drawers or appliances you want restricted to based on who's in the room. If kids are in the room or whatever, it will, it will lock the drawers.
2: Yeah, one of the challenges of particularly multi-generational use of a kitchen. So by that, we were thinking of um, people perhaps between youngsters, you know, three, four, um, as soon as they can walk, really probably earlier than that, through to in their 90s, even late 90s. And if you've got eight people in this multi-generational space at the same time, how, how does everybody pay attention to what everybody's doing? Is it a good idea that the four-year-old opens a knife drawer? Probably not. But if there's an adult in the room around them, then you'll probably spot that. But if there isn't an adult, you might not. If you can just sense who's in there or who's not in there or what combinations, then really it's not that difficult to lock the key drawers where the key risks are. And I thought that was just... uh, um, So you can talk about that scenario, but it's also true somebody who's cognitively impaired possibly because of age but not necessarily where actually it might not be in their interest just to go after the knife drawer and then I heard from uh, somebody who said you know what we have to lock some teenagers with behavioral difficulties out of the kitchen literally lock them out for their own safety Uh, and you go well you know what's unsafe well the knife drawer is unsafe okay well then why don't we just lock the knife drawer and let them in Um, So it's just, um, you know, we can do all these kinds of things. Um, It's just thinking who and when you need to do them. And in fact, my favourite expression is not about how you necessarily engage with the expression, but but I I talk about teaching Alexa to say no. So when the kid says, Alexa, unlock the knife drawer, she should be able to say, do you know what, that's actually a really bad idea till mum or dad's in the room. But we, we never expect Alexa to say no. We just expect to automate everything and do what we want. But what we want isn't always what we need. As well as kind of trying to
1: sort of be slightly bossy and um, keep people out of the kitchen, really, we should look at the way that technology can do the exact reverse, which is to bring people in. And one of the, the lovely things we were talking really a bit, touching early on about the mood music about uh, around the kitchen, what makes people Basically, bring them in or hold them there, and, and lighting is the key part of what we're able to do now with the new Philips light bulbs. And Peter's been done some fantastic work on the lighting here, so that you really can make this feel like a room you want to hang around in, say, to read a book after dinner. It's not just a place where you're going to come and cook. That, I mean, that's and I think that's what people really want. It seems to me that there's a huge, especially during lockdown. Um, there's a huge increase of time people are spending in the kitchen and they're expecting much more from it. It's no, it is a sitting room now. It's also a place where they're going to be working from home or kids are going to be doing homework. So, you know, how do we, how can we manage that? So the social response to all this, the technology, um, I think works really quite well with that.
0: Well, I can honestly say that home learning during the lockdown aged me about 15 years in in well, three weeks so. Yeah, that was that was very much about the mileage, not the years. Now, what about the usability aspect of it? Because we were used to rise and fall workshops and things like that for what you would traditionally call an accessible kitchen, but you've got rise and fall everything in here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that from a practical point of view, having an oven at the right height is a real blessing. There's quite an interesting move. I don't know whether you've monitored this from industry, but from what I understand from my conversations with Panasonic, certainly there's a big move towards people buying slightly smaller, more intelligent ovens. In other words, there's a gradual move towards the use of steam with convection. And once you start doing that, you, you need to be able to keep an eye on the food uh, whilst it's cooking. You want some kind of visual aspect, because what we don't want to do is just people, to just press a few buttons and then disappear away from the cooking process. I don't think they even like that very much. I think sight uh, of uh, what you're cooking as a sort of form of involvement and engagement it's part of the pleasure of cooking, too. So that particular oven we've got there um, is the latest from Panasonic, which does both those things. But there, it's interesting the way they're they're smaller chambers. So people are using them more, not exactly like a kind of hob replacement. But I would definitely like to think that the fact that ovens are really a sensible height will increase its use. I mean, it's, there is nothing worse than having an oven, I think, below countertop level. It's infuriating. So, yes, the answer is that things on the wall could be, uh, that are adjustable. One of the key things, I suspect, is an oven. Now, there's also another thing about the walls, which is you've probably noticed one of the key planning, big planning features, which we've had, again, a good response to, is the way that there's a proper walk-in pantry, because this removes the need for quite so much wall-based cabinetry, which I think can often be unergonomic, unpleasant, and well, claustrophobic, basically. But also, it's against the spirit of being able to see what you've got, and I think you'll see a return, probably or already to the a kitchen having a proper walk-in pantry, and we know from Alzheimer's people who've got you know issues with how they they want to they they want to use what they see or they use what they see, and we're all a bit like that too, and that is linked partly with being able to do more things with the wall. Now, in terms of the rise and fall mechanisms, yes, I think they need to be. I think. It is the ultimate part of an affordance is that you can. Um, the worktop determines really what you do with it. It's, I know the material does as well, but actually that, and so it's not just purely about responding to the individual height of somebody, it's about what you want them to do on that work surface. You want to organize them and man- manage them. That's, it's confusing to have large countertops. It's much better if you've got a sort of managed smaller surface so that you can almost determine what you want people to do on those surfaces.
0: You design a lot of kitchens. You have designed hundreds and hundreds of kitchens throughout your illustrious career there. Has this exercise changed the way you are going to design all your kitchens going forward? Are you going to introduce as- aspects of this into everyone? Yeah, I'd
1: like to think so. Yeah, it probably has. I mean, in a way, it's a continuation of quite a lot of the things I've been doing. But by having this motivation to have a a lot of people doing things at the same time, and be being kinder to the human body, I, I-, I just feel that sort of I've been prodded in the right direction. And working with Peter has been a real eye-opener to how to think about engaging um, literally furniture with people. Yeah, it's been very exciting, that aspect.
0: Peter, do you think, and I'm going to be very polite in the way I put this here now, but do you think you need a certain level of empathy to be able to to, to really appreciate and, and put yourself in the position to come up with these ideas? Do you have to be of a, of a certain maturity yourself and know lots of people or your friendship group or your family group are in that circumstance to really understand what those needs may be?
2: I think it does help. You know, I, I've worked with trying to help people remain independent in their homes for a lot of years. And, and, and I see the kinds of things that they have and I see the kinds of things that they don't want. Um, so it certainly does help to be aware of those kinds of things. I think in many ways, it's just learning to stand back and throw the preconceived ideas in the bin and not say this person will want this because, but talk about talk to people about what they do want. I mean, we spent as part of the work for this, gosh, three years ago now, we spent a day and a half in a biggish kitchen, not a very inspiring kitchen, but a biggest kitchen that we could get access to with 20 to 30 people actually across all the generations, and just let them tell us what they liked and they didn't like. Obviously, that really helped to sort of tease out some of the issues. But I, I think it's just canning your preconceived ideas and almost starting with a blank sheet of paper and saying, what, what do we think good looks like? Um, and and then just focusing on trying to do that rather than on trying to, um, to to go down some particular stereotypical views.
0: What do you think, Johnny? You know, as a more mature man, should we say, do you think you could have you could have tackled this concept in the same way thirty, forty years ago?
1: Good question. I think on a, to, to a lower bar, possibly yes, but n- not to this kind of level. And certainly, I think the way that we're trying to research this and learn from this is the focus group and um, finding out what people really want. I think that's really unusual. I I, I mean, I've always tried to, to listen to my customers, but quite a lot of the time, I've, I felt I told them what to do more than I've listened. But I certainly, I've been back to them to try and get feedback. And uh, we speed up that process, I think, rather, rather, rather well here by using focus groups. And we actually plan to build five more, which we're in the process of getting funding for with different aspects. In particular, we want to work on smaller kitchens and medium-sized ones. But the core principles, probably, I think we are, we're reasonably comfortable with. I think we also need to do more work on the technology. We think there's a lot more promise there. It is a prototype that, we, that we're working on here, but I hope we've got the sort of basics sort of nearly nearly there. When we're saying the world's most intelligent kitchen, it's not purely about the tech. It's really about how we relate to this sort of the mood music of, or, sub, or the subliminal element of what we want to touch.
0: Peter, what's the, what's the extrapolation of this then? This, you know, this has been an academic, uh, conceptual exercise. But as you said right at the beginning there, part of your job is to bridge the divide between academia and the, and, and the actual professional world. So what's the extrapolation of this? Are you looking for mass uh, market stuff? Are you looking for big, big manufacturers to get involved? What's the next step?
2: It will never be affordable for ordinary people if it's made in one-offs or even small batches. So so the dream is always that the industry would pick up some of these ideas and that it would end up being in volume. So uh, we are working with somebody, I probably shouldn't say at this stage, but uh, who is a household name that you would know wants to market this. People um, proactively. We are engaging with industry. We're in, obviously engaging with people who can make kitchens at scale, um, and people who can make some of the components at scale. So the idea here is to is to be making thousands, tens of thousands of these, not handful. And, and the the idea behind this was in a way to take Johnny's genius to the masses. So you know, if you've had lots of money and and reputation and all the rest of it you probably could afford Johnny's kitchens we'd like to take the genius of Johnny's designs and the fact that it makes people feel comfortable and at home in a kitchen we want to take that to to the masses and that's just means engaging with people that can do that and we've certainly had Interest expressed. I think we've had at least one uh, organisation that has money where their mouth is, who's expressed an interest. I won't say who it is, but expressed an interest in three thousand of them. So, you know, when you know that that's starting to get interesting.
0: The obvious question here, as well, is: This is a fantastic thing you've done for kitchens but the other half of of our listenership here is the bathrooms. And is there a danger bathrooms are getting left behind a bit here? Because they are, you know, bathrooms you could almost argue are are as important, if not more important, to people being able to stay in their own homes for longer. And they need to be more multi-generational even than kitchens do.
2: Absolutely. The National Innovation Centre for Ageing knows that bathrooms is another area and wants to do that. We've had some discussions, international discussions about that, actually. The bathroom industry, although it talks to itself very well, it's difficult to get traction um, in terms of um, getting people to sort of break out of their norm. That's certainly an ambition is to say, you know, how could we make ageless bathrooms? Uh, You've got to change the thinking and then get people to be willing to be different. There's some fantastic ideas around what you could do and how you could be more clever in terms of what you're doing in the the bathroom.
1: Actually, Peter's been having to hold me back because I'm really keen to do bathrooms, really keen. And we've actually had one or two sort of off-the-record conversations with bathroom manufacturers. And funnily enough, I think the bathroom industry have been smarter than the kitchen industry. They talk to themselves much better than we do, I think. The bathroom is absolutely ready for something like this. I mean, I, I don't think we've got to do as much work in some ways. I think we've got work to do on the some of the core equipment, but I think we, we'd be stri- We'll be we'd be pushing at an open door,
0: and I think that's probably true. Particularly because so many building developments have to meet a lot more stringent legislative aspects of what goes in and out of the bathroom. If you can tick those boxes while providing a level of design and style and luxury, then I think you can't really lose. But as you say. Yeah, i've yet to see it done in a really effective way in the same way that you're kind of doing with kitchens here well look i could talk about this all day as you well know because we've been talking about it for years but i'm so pleased that we finally got a kitchen i can't wait to come up and see it and as soon as i'm allowed i will but for now gents thank you so much for your time but of course there's there's one more question that we need to ask there's one the most important question that we really need to you know get to the bottom of here and that is and you get one each We need to know what, if you've had a terrible day, you come home, you pick up the remote control, what is going to be the movie you put on to cheer yourselves up? What is your entrance into the silence of the laminates? Peter? I'm going to start with you. And given your job and where you work, I'm really hoping you're going to say cocoon.
2: I don't think I've ever seen that. I just love looking at hills and space. And I love music, so I guess it would, despite it makes me look very sad, I love the sound of music.
0: The Sound of Music, well, you know what? That's the first appearance of The Sound of Music, and, you know, any feel-good movie that can have Nazis in it is always a good choice for this particular feature.
2: Yeah, but they got subverted. It wasn't... They didn't
0: win. That is true. And anyone who's, like, the most favourite thing in the world is Whiskers-on-Kittens, then, you know, they are easily pleased. (laughs) Johnny, what about you? What are you going to go for?
1: i it's a hard one, because it's often what you've just seen. But I love Short Term 12. I think that's a really charming, eccentric little film about an American... It's a, a, a teenager's sort of care centre run by people who are not much more than teenagers who've basically been damaged themselves. And it's, it's a real feel-good film. But I'm going to choose, I'm afraid, his dark materials. I just can't resist a glass of red wine and sitting down with Philip Pullman's incredible production.
0: First of all, that is the most Johnny Grey answer you could possibly get because the first one, even I've never heard of. And the second one is technically a TV series. But you know what? I don't care because it is the most cinematic TV series you could possibly get. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you have that one because it is amazing
1: it's multi-generational okay
0: so. it is <laughs> everyone loves it <laughs> peter johnny thanks so much for your time this is brilliant again we, we will catch up on this again and when i come up and see it in person we'll do another episode uh, actually stood in the middle of that kitchen how does that sound
1: right fantastic Look to really it. wonderful thank you for all your well for you partly helping bring it about
0: well thank you very much I, my part in it was it was minimal at best but thank you very much i'll speak to you both again soon Great.
2: thanks a lot
0: that's it for this episode and that's it for 2020 huge thanks to johnny and peter if you go to the episode description you'll find a link through to a great little video that shows the four gen kitchen in all its glory i really recommend that and thank you to you for listening and thank you to all my guests this year this has been a year unlike anything i or anyone has ever experienced we've seen disruption uncertainty crashing lows and astonishing highs We've seen the very best of humanity while witnessing it at its lowest. We all want this year to end and I've been trying to think of something profound and meaningful that truly encapsulates just how we feel right now. And it is simply this. Fuck you 2020. Fuck you. Merry Christmas.